1935. The world is amid the Great Depression. In Salt Lake City, Utah, a young stake president, Harold B. Lee, sits face to face with church president Heber J. Grant. President Grant asks for his opinion on providing relief for church members in need. The beginnings and growth of the church welfare system are next in chapter 23, All That Is Necessary. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. Joining us today, we have Brian Cannon, a professor of history at Brigham Young University, and Jeff Anderson, an archivist in the church history department. Thank you both so much for being here today with us. Happy to be here. Glad to be here with you. We'd love to start today by hearing your thoughts about why you think history has relevance in the world today, considering how quickly societies seem to be changing. I remember this being a question with my work, you know, why history? And at the time, Tom Alexander, who was a professor at BYU, was in our department. So I went down to Tom and I said, Tom, why is history important? And he went off and talked about all these theoretical things. And I said, so just say I'm building a bridge. Why should I care? And he said something that I thought was really profound. He says, everything that goes into that bridge is made up of something someone did before. And so you have to build upon what you know and what you understand. And so it takes us to where we are. You look at, for example, World War II. Current events have a great bearing on what happened in World War II because the way the world is laid out is the fallout from that event and other events. There's all sorts of events that have an impact on bringing us to where we are today. Well, thank you so much. And I think for the church members who are perhaps reading saints, this is a good opportunity for them to understand a little bit about how and why the church is the way it is today. Through reading the stories of some of the people we're going to talk about today, such as Harold B. Lee and the church welfare program, These are things that didn't just come out of thin air. There are things that fed into them. So I'm excited for us to talk about some of these experiences. Yes, that's such a great perspective. Well, to start out with, we read in the chapter that President Harold B. Lee sees himself as an inexperienced farm boy from a small town in Idaho. And I just love that description of himself. (laughs) But what can you tell us about President Lee's personal history and how he came to be in Salt Lake City as a state president? When Harold B. Lee returned from his mission in the early 1920s to the family farm in Idaho, the economy was not doing well. The agricultural economy in the Intermountain West was struggling. The prices of farm products were very low, and a lot of farm families had debts that they needed to repay. And so there were a lot of families leaving the farm, and it wasn't a good time for young men like President Lee to get into agriculture. Presently had training as a school teacher and principal and had some experience doing that prior to his mission. And so he went to Salt Lake City and the rest of his family, his parents and others, wound up following him to Salt Lake City also. And in Salt Lake, he enrolled at the University of Utah and he obtained a teaching position in the public schools in the Salt Lake Valley. And that position as a teacher only paid him for part of the year. And as many school teachers over the decades have done, he had to find other jobs in the summertime to supplement his teaching income. 
So he did a variety of things in the summers. And one of the things that he began doing is sales. And he was good at sales. So his wife felt that perhaps he should explore other career opportunities. He had experimented with sales and was good at it. And so he became a full-time salesman working for a publishing company in the Salt Lake Valley in the late 1920s. And so uh, that's what he was doing in the Salt Lake Valley until 1932, when he left that job to become a full-time commissioner for the city of Salt Lake. Well, thank you for that introduction to Presently's background and for the extra information as to how he came to be in Salt Lake. I'm curious, though, if either of you could tell us a little bit more about what he was like as an individual. Do we have any sense of what his personality or his temperament was, for example? My sense is that he's really quite an organizer. He's sort of the father of the correlation program when he becomes a general authority. I get the sense that he's quite an organized man and he's a person who's really good at those types of things, which plays into what he develops with the welfare program. What he has developed is a real genius organization that I think comes out of a mind that's a mind that organizes things, pulls things together and sets things straight and helps them work the way they should. I think he's kind of the classic type A personality, (laughs) extremely well organized, driven, industrious, hardworking, innovative. His daughters told stories about how he would come home from work and he would race upstairs and change his clothes really quickly and run out and mow the lawn as quickly as anyone has ever mown a lawn. And then someone would call and ask for a priesthood blessing and he'd race in and put his suit back on and run over to somebody's house and give them a blessing. So just busy, busy all the time and driven. That's amazing. I love knowing these extra things that we don't necessarily get from saints. So thank you for sharing. Well, jumping back to volume two, we read about the settlement of Utah and the establishment of Salt Lake City. And here we are now about 85 to 90 years later. And we were wondering if you could just share with us the condition of the state of Utah and its economy. What are the main sources of employment and how is the state faring as the economy tried to recover from the Great Depression? So the state's economy was heavily based on extractive industries, so agriculture and mining and industries that processed agricultural commodities and industries like smelters that were involved in processing mineral products. So it's a classic Intermountain West economy, very vulnerable to swings in the market, booms and busts in the market cycle. If you compare the economy in Utah to, say, the economy of California, which is much more diversified, Utah's economy was much more vulnerable to an economic depression. And that was reflected in exceptionally high rates of unemployment. So the national average is about a quarter of the workforce being unemployed, uh, 20 to 25%. And in Utah, we're upwards of 33%, upwards of a third of the population was unemployed in the worst of the depression. So obviously the, the valley's undergone a fairly significant transformation from, from what, how they found it when they arrived. So I wonder if we could talk about the calling of stake president for a moment. And we may have some leaders who are listening to the podcast who maybe are stake presidents and I imagine maybe would be sweating 
under the collar a little bit of being asked to do something so significant as what President Lee is being asked to do. But how was it that President Lee was able to undertake such a large project in his stake? And what powers did a stake president have at this time? They certainly have more, I think, than they do today. The stakes were a little bit more autonomous. They owned their own meeting houses. They employed custodians, for example, and were responsible to pay them on a payroll. So they would have had more responsibility. A stake president would not have the responsibility of dealing with a family that came in with a problem. That's delegated to the bishop. But what he does have is he has bishops coming to him saying, here's what we've got. Help us resolve this. And so I can see President Lee with a lot of bishops coming back and saying, we have these families who are really struggling. What are we going to do about this? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right, Jeff, in the sense that bishops are coming, I'm sure, to him as stake president and pleading for help. His stake was worse hit than the state at large. You're talking about close to half of the breadwinners in the stake being unemployed. And how on earth are you going to be able to assist your members and ensure that they have food on the table and a roof over their head and clothing to wear? And I do know that. Stake presidents were able to work with the presiding bishop's office if they needed additional assistance. And if the presiding bishop couldn't help them, they could go to the first presidency. And there's one point in time where President Lee actually goes to the first presidency. This is long before the church welfare plan. And he says, we've been authorized to use tithing funds and fast offering funds, but it's not enough. And the presiding bishop isn't able to give us what we need. And the first presidency was supportive of what he and his counselors were trying to do in their stake. And they said, we're grateful that a stake presidency is so committed to serving the members of their stake and that they are trying to do this. And so whatever you need, if the church can provide it, we'll support and sustain you in that work. So they're not going rogue at all in what they're doing. They're working in tandem with general authorities, but they're doing all that they possibly can. The church doesn't have unlimited resources. This is an era when there isn't a lot of wealth. They can offer support, but it's not unlimited in what they can do. That's right. I mean, they're cutting the payrolls of church employees. I know here at BYU, faculty and staff, uh, they had their salaries cut they're trying to get rid of some of the old church academies. So Weber and Dixie and Snow, they're trying to turn those over to the state to try to reduce their financial outlay. The church wasn't as secure financially then as it is today. Yeah, this was a particularly tough time, especially overcoming all these difficulties that you've described. So for the next question, we'd like to know from your research and from your understanding, what were some of the factors behind President Lee's success with welfare in the pioneer stake? Well, I think vision is one thing. He also counseled closely with his counselors, with bishops in the stake and with others. And so it was a collective effort. And there were other stake presidents who were doing similar types of things in the granite stake, for instance. I believe it may have been President Hinckley's father who was the stake president there for a while. They're doing similar types of things to try to support their members there. But one thing that was key in 
the success that President Lee experienced in the Pioneer Stake was that they sent people out to the outlying districts in Salt Lake Valley, and I believe uh, coming down to Utah Valley also, maybe other places, talking to farmers and saying, could you possibly employ members of our stake in a stake effort to provide relief to members of our stake? And so with that type of initiative, they're able to identify work opportunities for some members, and they take their pay in farm produce, and a lot of that farm produce goes back to the stake, and the stake's able then to distribute that farm produce to members. So that, I think, is an important element, certainly not the only element, but an important element in Pioneer Stake's success. Well, thank you for that. It's interesting to get a better understanding of how the stakes were operating and the financial situation, because it sounds as if the church leadership are just very impressed with what President Lee has managed to accomplish. And I suppose this volume does deal with church finances in several places at the start of the book. You know, we talk about the financial crisis in the 1890s, and we might be confused or somewhat surprised, given the financial state, to see that the church doesn't want members to rely on government aid. They don't want members to become reliant, I suppose, on the state. But but why were they concerned about that? Surely they would have been pleased to know that members would have had some money coming in and not just relying on the church. It's the fear that is created in the human psyche if they're living off the dole if they're getting something for nothing. My wife and I are just finished teaching a financial self-reliance class. And the self-reliance program that we have now is the notion is to get people on their feet and to earn a living by the sweat of your brow. And there's an understanding, I think, that came forward in the 30s as this is going on, that some people right now, they've lost their jobs and there's no jobs available. So we're going to get them on their feet as much as we can. But the more important piece, I think, is that we don't want our people to lose their self-sufficiency. That is such a crucial part of who we are and what the church advocates. Yeah, you go way back to the early years in Utah and Brigham Young's strong emphasis on cutting the threads economically that bound the saints to the outside world. So the Latter-day Saints had a long tradition of trying to be as self-sufficient as possible. And this heavy intrusion of the federal government into what had historically been a neighbor-to-neighbor responsibility and a local government responsibility was alarming to members of the First Presidency. Initially, the church worked quite closely with the federal government in the New Deal era. And in fact, Relief Society presidents and bishops were involved in identifying people who needed federal assistance and in interviewing people for federal assistance. And that harmonious relationship began to break down when in some stakes and wards, perhaps because they were accustomed to doing this, bishops and Relief Society presidents began to advise recipients of welfare to begin attending church. So from the position of the government, that was an inappropriate request to be made if they were receiving aid from the government. On the church side of the equation, there were individuals who were serving missions for the church, married individuals, and their wives went to a government welfare worker and requested assistance. 
and the government welfare worker said, well, reveal all of your assets. And they said, well, I have a husband, but he's serving a mission for the church. And in some cases, these people were refused welfare. And this didn't set well with the church leadership. And so some tensions developed between government employees who were involved in the welfare state and church leaders and workers who were involved in providing welfare to the church through the Relief Society and the wards and so forth. So that's another factor that entered in to church leaders' concerns about are the saints becoming too heavily reliant on government welfare and at what cost? I really love when they asked President Lee to make a proposal based on his experience with the Pioneer Stake. I love that the book included his experience receiving that revelation from Heavenly Father. And he was just asking for this guidance, saying, I can't do this. I need help. But when he made this proposal, President Grant was hesitant about it. Can you tell us what was this hesitation toward this first proposal? My partial answer is that there was some difference of opinion within the church leadership about the necessity of the church moving ahead aggressively in this area. So for a long time, the Relief Society president, Amy Brown Lyman, and the presiding bishop, Sylvester Q. Cannon, who worked most closely with Relief, were quite content with the relationship that had developed with New Deal agencies. And they didn't see as dire of a need as President J. Rubin Clark saw, for instance, or as President Grant perhaps saw, but I think particularly President Clark saw a great need for the church to do more. So President Grant was concerned that maybe ward and stake leaders aren't ready to get behind an aggressive, ambitious program such as what President Lee and his counselors had undertaken in the Pioneer Stake. And personalities enter in here. And so some individuals in the church saw what President Lee was doing. They said he's a politician also now. He's a city commissioner. He's a climber. And he's just doing this partly to make a name for himself. He's ambitious. He's a go-getter. And is this appropriate? And so there were those concerns raised as well. I think, Brian, there's something going on here in the United States uh, at the time. The Roosevelt administration comes in with a lot of these programs that are troubling, I think, politically to a lot of people. There are folks who are very concerned about that. And and this notion of keeping people off the dole really plays into that. Yeah, there was a lot of support for Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal here in Utah. He was very popular and very popular among some bishops and stake presidents and other church leaders, and very unpopular among others. And so this was a divisive issue. So that also explains, I think, President Clark's desire for this program and President Grant's concern about, can we hold the church together if we move into this area, particularly if we're perceived as trying to supplant what the federal government's doing or trying to criticize what the federal government's doing? So as the church president, he wants to unify the church, not to make this such a divisive issue that the Spirit of the Lord won't attend the members in their efforts. Well, I think that brings up a good point. I mean, one of the central planks of the plan is this assistance in exchange for labor aspect. A question I have is, how did the saints respond to this? Whereas in the government, they're essentially given some money 
whereas the saints are being asked by the church to do some things in order to receive assistance. How did they respond to that? There was a lot of enthusiasm among most welfare recipients, even if they were on government welfare, for working for their keep. And so there may well have been people who said, no, I want cash, I don't want commodities, and taken that approach. But many people wanted to work for what they were receiving. That was part of their work ethic. And so we know that tens of thousands of church members moved in the direction of the church welfare program and began receiving assistance that way and working for assistance as opposed to staying on federal relief rolls. On the other hand, federal welfare rolls go up. The number of people on those rolls goes up in Utah, uh, even after the welfare plan is instituted. So my sense is that things were so bad in Utah economically that people needed assistance wherever they could get it. And they were willing to work for that assistance. And in fairness to the New Deal, most of the New Deal relief by the time that the church program is announced is work relief. So people are paid in cash rather than commodities, but they're expected to do work. And Franklin D. Roosevelt was as fearful of the dole as President Grant was, actually. So I'm sure that there were people who were delighted to move off of government roles and to receive assistance through their bishops and Relief Society presidents. And there may have been others who were opposed for any number of reasons. But the fact is that the number of people being assisted goes up, both people who are being assisted by the church and people who are being assisted by the government. Yeah, I think the principle of self-reliance is something that a lot of people feel passionately about. I mean, you can feel it in your bones that you want to be self-reliant. And so I love that that is such a major principle with this whole program. I have a question about Bishop Storehouses, because we read in Volume 1 about Bishop Newell K. Whitney had a storehouse in the Newell K. Whitney store. And so I would love to talk about a comparison between those very early saints having that bishop storehouse as a resource versus now in this programs being implemented, what we're reading about, and then even today, how they're functioning. Yeah, I've seen a photograph of a bishop storehouse in Salt Lake City from uh, sometime around uh, 1939, 1940, and it's a well-stocked store. There's food in that store. There's clothing in the store. I mean, it's not all being produced in a single stake that you have different stakes engaging in different projects. They're using some of what they produce for their own stake members, but then the rest goes into that regional storehouse and becomes available then to assist other people. Well, I think many wars had a church farm in the day. They've, I think they've sold most of those off now, but many wards for a time had little pieces of property and they grew hay or whatever. And I recall, you know, going to priesthood meeting and the elders quorum president would say, okay, you know, somebody needs to bale the hay. Somebody needs to cut the hay. Who can do that? Well, so-and-so has a swather and -and so-and-so has a hay baler. And we got a bunch of young men who are big, strong and burly, and they can pick the bales up and load them on the wagon. That goes back to that work ethic and that community of I'm loading hay on a wagon, and that's going to probably go to a dairy farm and feed the cows, and the cows are going to produce milk for families that are struggling right now. And the picture you've just given us there, Jeff, it, it's it's almost romantic, isn't it? You know, this idea of people coming together, working to provide for others who need help. And I mean, I imagine it was a lot of hard work and meant people giving up at their own time. But I do have a question about that, because 
This new program that's been instituted, it does sound like a lot of work, particularly for church leaders who are having to oversee and administer and organize and do all of this background support. I wonder if you could tell us about how this new system of welfare affected the church in the United States. What kind of an impact did it have? I don't know a lot about the impact outside of Utah in those early years, but there were individuals who were employed full-time to do some of the administration of the welfare program. But most of the labor was donated labor. So what Jeff was describing from his own experience in working on the hay farm or whatever, most of the hours that are being put in are put in by people who are doing this as a free will offering. But it wasn't possible for all of that to be done in that fashion. And so some individuals uh, did have to be hired to operate. When you have that big granary that's established there, it's constructed about 1940, just off of 6th South in Salt Lake. Those types of things, you have to have full-time people who were involved in managing things as well. I do know that the welfare program made people's lives better in terms of assisting the poor. I assume that that was the case in states across the nation. I know the Utah experience best and definitely there which is where most of the church members have resided at the time. It was a great blessing to people who needed financial assistance and a great blessing also uh, because it worked to preserve people's dignity. It also worked to try to place people on a self-sufficient basis. So one of the things that the welfare program entailed was vocational training. So people who were unskilled laborers could be placed in training programs and learn how to become a plumber or a carpenter or learn some other trade. The church for a time also had a resettlement program where loans would be provided so that farmers who were, say, tenant farmers, didn't have their own farmland, could purchase land and relocate on that land and pay back their loans. So there are those types of efforts as well. Not to mention the Deseret Industries that we're familiar with that get started in the late 1930s. That also, when you go into retail, is going to require some volunteer service and then some full-time employment to manage. Well, as we read about the beginnings of this program and how it was started, it would be interesting to have a better understanding of how it actually works today as a role of a bishop, a role of ward members. How does it work? With my wife serving as a Relief Society president and with my serving in a bishopric where there have been members of the ward who have needed assistance and they've gone to the bishop and the bishop has worked with the Relief Society president and they look at what do you have and what do you need. The Relief Society president will fill out a food order. They're able to go then to a bishop's storehouse and obtain the commodities that they need. I've done service as restocking the shelves in the bishop's storehouse uh, at various points in time. And it's very good, high-quality products that are available there uh, to provide assistance to people in need. And Relief Society presidents especially are also involved in providing some financial coaching for individuals in terms of money management. And so if you're running down and cashing your paycheck at a loan place, it's going to take a huge percentage as a commission from your paycheck. 
or if you're writing checks and you don't have money in your account to cover the balance and the bank is assessing a fee each time you do that, some people just aren't aware of the implications of some of the decisions that they're making in desperation financially. And so there's a role to be played by Relief Society presidencies or others in the ward, uh, elders quorum presidencies, in, in just helping people understand the financial literacy, the type of thing that Jeff was talking about with self-reliance class that he and his wife have been teaching. So that's another important component of welfare. You know, I recall the stake sent out this general announcement years ago, and there'd been an earthquake in Nicaragua. So we went down to Welfare Square. This was after the store had closed. Went down to Welfare Square, and we took the shopping carts that you would use in the store, in the Welfare Square store, and we created an assembly line. And we ran the shopping carts down the row, and there were people standing on the sides, and they would put in two bags of beans, and they'd put in so much rice, and they would put in all these other commodities. And then you get to the end, there was somebody with tape to tape the box shut, and then somebody to take that box, or I think they were loading two boxes per cart, something like that, and loaded on a truck. And then the truck went off to an airplane, and that flew down to Nicaragua within 24 hours. You know, the church can just respond so quickly to things like that. There's so many incredible things that I think are children of this welfare program that President Lee developed. Thank you both for your comments there. And I'm reminded of a point you made earlier, Jeff, about how this was about helping cultivate self-reliance. And we see that today. The church wants members to have that dignity that Brian mentioned earlier. They want to have that self-respect but they obviously don't want to leave members high and dry. You know, they are there to help. And, you know, as a leader of my congregation, you know, we're regularly encouraged. I had a letter this month saying, if there is someone in need, go out and help them. Whatever their circumstances in terms of their relationship to the church, or it doesn't matter whether they're a tithe payer, whether they are there in the pews on Sundays, we need to support and love and help these people. And I think what we see that President Lee started was a means whereby people could be helped more than just being fed for the day. It was about helping them to move out of the difficult circumstances they were in. And that, I think, is incredibly inspiring. It helps people be agents in their own lives, not just reliant on others. And for our listeners, there's so much more in this chapter, too, that, of course, we can't touch on in a single episode. So we encourage you to visit the church history topics to learn more about the people and places and experiences you're reading about in Saints. Well, Jeff and Brian, thank you both for sharing those personal experiences or close experiences. I feel like that helps me have a better understanding of how the program works and should work to benefit people. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.